This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, good morning. You are listening to The Morning Run. It's Wednesday, the 1st of June, the 1st of a new month. I'm Shazana Mokdar together with Kusu Chuang this lovely dark Wednesday morning. Good morning, good morning. How are you, Shaz? Long time no see. Long time no see, but it actually hasn't felt like any time, Chuang, honestly. Yeah, yeah. it's like zoop. Twilight Zone. Very fast. We're in June, for God's sake. We are in June. Almost midway to the month. Uh, hopefully 2022 has been a better year. But honestly, there have been a lot of curveballs thrown this year. I think the past five months has um, really upended a lot of uh, our lives or, you know, just whatever. It's a continuation of 2020, essentially, it feels like. In any case, uh, we are going to be discussing loads of issues this morning. Starting with 7.15, we're going to discuss what does the Constitution say about vernacular schools and minority rights. We discussed the recent High Court decision on this issue with Edin Ku of Pusaka. And then at 7.30, it's all about the expanding Chinese geopolitical influence because we will talk to James Batsley of the Australian National University and the subject matters, of course, the expanding influence of China among the Pacific Isles, much to Australia's consternation. And then after that, at 7.45, how transparent is Malaysia's budgeting process? We're going to discuss the findings of the Open Budget Index with Sri Murniati of Ideas. We'll have all this and more today on The Morning Run. Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. James Gang and Country Fever. Before that, you heard Gladys Knight with Running Out. You're listening to The Morning Run. We're coming up to 6.08 in the morning on Wednesday, the 1st of June. Now, the first story in our long list of conversations this morning. Morning. We are turning to a podcast from the Wall Street Journal. This is the journal's daily podcast known as The Journal. And it's focusing on social media. It's, it's a, it studies a confluence of, of, of issues like social media, um, financial investing, and also market volatility. So the COVID-19 pandemic promulgated a certain breed of retail investor. I think we all saw that exemplified by uh, the Reddit group Wall Street Bets um, and meme stocks like GameStop and AMC. So uh, the exuberance of over-retail investing thus led to a new crop of social media influencers who were all about investing in this kind of climate, right? But um, as uh, the market undergoes this period of volatility following the Russia-Ukraine war, following economies reopening, things just keep happening. Um, I think there's a lot of anxiety among these retail investors as they now come into an environment of um, higher interest rates and and how that's affecting the stock market. Um, So I was curious uh, to ask you, Chuang, whether you followed any financial social media influencers and whether you saw a a change in tone in how they spoke about investing as the environment changed. Yeah, those stimulus checks have dried up and of course uh, those day traders have ebbed and flowed away and dwindled away. I think it's a good thing because a lot of these influencers that uh, gain huge followings on YouTube and other social media channels uh, based on their recommendations for the stock market were pretty much, I think, okay... at risk of being generalizing, right, uh, overgeneralizing, a lot of them didn't have the credentials to be stock market influencers or market influencers. They are very good at social media. They're amazing at building followings, but they don't know much about the market because how many, how many cycles have they been through? Do you right. know what I mean? A lot of them are in the 20s, 30s, you know. and They're extremely young. They're extremely young. And uh, unless you've been through market turbulence of the kind that can only be witnessed during a financial crisis and the whole cycle before and after that, you don't really know. And these are unprecedented times, right? So you've got layers and layers and layers of volatility and uncertainty. And on top of that, these are unprecedented times. 
how can you, with any kind of wisdom, uh, influence you know with with prudence and responsibility millions of people around the world. So that's the paradox of the situation that I find because the social media influencers, they're attractive and it's attractive that investment advice is coming from a group of people that you don't normally see give out investment advice, right? We're so used to the white-haired old guy, uh, the likes of uh, Warren Buffett or Ray Dalio. You know, I mean, we're used to that. But when you see a new crop of um, young people uh, seemingly talking with knowledge about investment, I mean, I think... That's pretty. That's pretty persuasive for a lot of people. Yeah, we we like seeing those who are closer to us in in terms of relate, relatability, approachability, um, give us advice that resonates. Yeah, and a lot of people don't realize the risks inherent because the paradox is this: the old guy, you know, the Stan Druckenmillers and Ray Dalio, who are well into the seventies, eighties, and nineties, they have no clue how to start a YouTube channel or how to be an Instagram influencer. But they are the ones that are really, really rich with information. The young guy who doesn't have the benefit of four or five cycles behind him or her, they're amazing at this. So the paradox is that they've got all these millions of people following these young guys who don't really have that perspective and, and you lose that. So, so you saw a lot of money, a lot of people lose a lot of money in the last basically six months, right, since November. And a lot of money was lost in Bitcoin or, or, or rather cryptocurrencies. There are a lot of people who, who had a lot of FOMO going to crypto from November last year. They've lost their pants. So it's like the journal's podcast detailed. They uh, zoomed into one particular social media influencer named Kevin Pafrath. So he started out as um, a real estate agent, uh, but he built up a following as a landlord influencer. And when markets were hot, he kind of uh, started giving out investment advice or, or you know, uh, commenting on investment trends and such. Uh, but starting from the beginning of this year, when he saw markets beginning to tank, you know, he was advocating for maybe either selling, selling out your stocks. That that he got a lot of backlash from people who were still on the rah rah markets um, train of sorts. Um, so he's seen his following dip from the millions that he had, I suppose, to a lesser million or such. But um, the podcast talks about that. Um, I suppose, inability of these retail investors to kind of grasp how markets, the cycles of it, yeah, go up and down. So it's like you said, everyone's just really used to a bull market. They're not really, um, they're not used to seeing a bear market. And and that's going to affect a lot of people if they're not prepared for these kinds of scenarios. Yeah, financial literacy is one of the things that I'm very, very interested in and very serious about. And I, I get very, I get very depressed when I see a lot of people who don't want to put in the hard yards and learn about the financial markets who just want to get the go and buy this or go and buy that or the I recommend bucks. the quick buck. And I think that it's, it's reflective of our time now, Shaz, because, you know, la- last time when you want to find out something, you had to go into the, well, I don't know, the Encyclopedia Britannica, you had to go to the public library, you had to put in the hard yards, right? To, if you really wanted to learn something today, all you have to do is just ask Sergey and Larry and they give you the, <laughs> the information. You know, so, so that whole immediacy has, has permeated society and culture. It's very bad. I, I think the um, instinct or the desire to get rich quick has always been there. But like you said, Google and the internet and just um, online uh, resources have exacerbated, yeah, I suppose, that yeah. temptation or, or that um, or that drive. Um, and it's really down to societies, I guess, to adapt to this in the best way we can and ensure that financial literacy is taught, I suppose, at younger and younger ages. Because with um, online apps that allow you to invest, the gamification of investment, yeah. that's really... 
it makes it very easy for someone to, uh, you know, put their fingers in in the investing pie. But whether Did you ever get Robinhood's app, it's like a game. You know, I downloaded it, right? And it's exactly like a game. It just makes it so easy. Right. Right. So where does, I guess it's a broader discussion about responsibility. Yeah? How do we get these platforms to market? I mean, it's smart marketing, but at the end... It's not the most responsible in the world. It's not the most responsible. And I think that comes on both sides of the equation, both on the part of the platforms, on the part of the consumers. Um, and I guess where we can to provide those frameworks for financial literacy moving forward. Um, tell us what you think. You know, Have you noticed a shift in how financial influencers talk about markets? Do you follow any particular financial influencers, whether in Malaysia or abroad, WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. We are heading into some messages now, but when we come back, we commemorate the Queen's 75th Jubilee. Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. The adults are talking by the strokes. We're not adults here, though. I do not. We don't, we don't, we don't lay claim to that term. As far as we know, we're always pemuda, right? Pemuda, pemudi, that's you and me, Chuang. As the famous comedian, now deceased, Dudley Moore, once said, you can grow old, but you don't have to grow up. <laughs> <laughs> that was Kusu Chuang. I'm Shazana Mokhtar. We're the morning run, 6.21 in the morning on Wednesday, the 1st of June. Speaking of growing up, though... Or growing old, somebody who has uh, definitely lived a very long, fruitful life is Queen Elizabeth II, I believe. The second, right? She is the second, not the first or the second. Th- yeah, the second. second yeah. And she's celebrating 70 years on the throne this year. Earlier I said 75. I was mistaken. I'm sorry. It's just 70. I gave her an extra five years. 70 years on the throne this year. And I think this week uh, the UK is having a host of events to mark that milestone. Yeah, Queen Elizabeth, um, anti-royals might say, yes, long life, fruitful, don't know. But uh, she was born in 1926 and she was basically, she ascended to the throne, to the monarchy uh, when she was quite young, I think well into her te- teens, right? 20s, I think. Yeah, so she's been on the throne 70 years, right? And and basically, you know, it's, it's a jubilee weekend. It's, it's four days of celebrations and festivities in the UK. Everybody's looking forward to the long weekend. And um, so what happened with the BBC, as they do, um, because they are the BBC, they, they ran this montage about, you know, the kind of era she's, she's witnessed in her 70 years on the throne. And it's interesting because she's been through, you know, a couple of world wars. She's been through Neil Armstrong on the moon. She's been through televisions entering the home. And now television's no longer de rigueur in homes. So this whole passage of time has been fascinating for Queen Elizabeth's reign. And it made me think about the other person that is also of the same vintage, 96 or 95 years old, which is Mahadir Allah, you know, Dr. Mahadir, right? And it wasn't that long ago that he was our prime minister. And, um, you know, long-serving monarchs, long-serving prime ministers. Mahathir has been prime minister twice in Malaysia, right? And it made me think about the relevance of these, you know, these institutions, whether it's the royalty or whether it's, you know, these long-serving um, prime ministers and whether they, their relevance, lah, you know. And it made me think about people like Jacinta Ardern in New Zealand and about how Sweden's got different prime ministers and Trudeau in Canada, he's vilified as well for different reasons. But, you know, it's just about staying relevant and, and about how able they are to govern a country when they are not so in touch anymore. Well, let's be clear. The Queen doesn't govern the UK. She's, no, she doesn't. She's a symbolic um, head of state. So she's there as that uh, royal figurehead, but she doesn't actually have any say in the day-to-day governance of the country. That's done by the Prime Minister and, their, and the government. And she has seen how many different Prime Ministers? I want to count. Um, I'm not sure that I can count Quite them a lot, all. Five or six. But I there mean. is a lot. She's been through it all since World War II, right? Um, and it 
brings the question of I, I, I try to put myself in her shoes and I wonder, I mean, I don't think I can, I don't think I have, I, I, I won't know what she feels. But I do think that it must be, it must be a pretty lonely position, actually, to kind of be the only witness um, that has survived all these different changes, right? Yes, last year she um, suffered the loss of her spouse, Prince Philip, but they've been married for 73 years. And I feel that that's as remarkable as her being on the throne for 70 years, being married to someone for 70 years. Uh, that's, that's a really, really long time. Yeah, it's lonely at the top, right? right? CEOs who get old and you know, CEOs who ascend to the position, you know, their staff doesn't want to have lunch with them because they don't work, sit with the boss and talk about work. <laughs> you know, it's like that, right? And she's been like that and since she, she was 25. Yeah, right? So not when now, you think about and, and her vintage, not only is she, is she lonely at the top for those years, she's also old at the point where a lot of her friends, maybe her classmates, I don't know, did she have classmates? She must I have had classmates, right? <laughs> They're all like falling off, right? Jimmy, so it must be very lonely, you know? As you say, Shaz. Um, and then, you know, Harry and Kate. Not Harry and Kate. Who, who, Harry and... William. The, no, oh, no, no. Harry, Harry no, no, and Megan. Megan, that's the one. That must have done a head in, right? I think what happened... <laughs> yeah, the, the events that have rocked the royal family, you know, from... Uh, under her, and then Prince under Andrew her and what watch. he did with Epstein. Don't My forget, goodness. it goes all the way back to Princess Diana, the late Princess That's Diana, right. and That's just right. the turmoil of the divorce between her and um, Prince Charles. Uh, I, I think, yeah, even within that family microcosm itself, uh, there's been so much change. And whether, as you said earlier, Chuang, whether the royal family in the UK can stay relevant or not is a big question. I think for this particular jubilee, there has been... There's interest, but I suppose not the same interest that may have been seen about 20, 30 years ago. Uh, I think people are perhaps not as clued in or tapped into what the royal family is doing. And if you look abroad at their empire, you also see uh, countries in the Commonwealth also starting to um, distance themselves and ask to become a republic rather than have Queen Elizabeth or the uh, UK monarch as the royal figurehead. That's right. That's right. Um, and yeah, and and you know, yeah. I, I, what what can I say, right? Except that to say that you know, when Top Gun Maverick was launched, William and was it William, 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 yeah, and Kate were uh, front and center of the photographs. That's all I can mention about the royal family. <laughs> Well, it's 6.26 in the morning. Do you have any observations about the UK royal family? Are you a royal watcher? Tell us what you think. WhatsApp us 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. We're heading into the 6.30 a.m. news bulletin and to take you to the news. Summer in the City by Joe Cocker. Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. It's only 6.41 in the morning. I'm Shazana Mokdar with Kusu Chuang. We'll be with you all the way up to 10 a.m. And now is that time of day where we take a look at what's making headlines around the world. Tell me, Chuang, what has caught your eye first thing in the morning? Lifeguards, because America just um, enjoyed its Memorial Day weekend. And uh, a lot of people were out in the sun and on the beaches. And guess what? The pools, the public pools, didn't half of them in America, I think California, couldn't open because they didn't have lifeguards on duty. There was not enough people. Okay, which then I I cross referenced and I found this other story that in LA, right, uh, LA, top lifeguards are paid five hundred and fifty-one thousand dollars a year. Wow. Yeah. Does so that come with the outfit? <laughs> <laughs> like what kind of what kind well, of uniforms outfits, do they have? Because the less you wear, the more. Tr- well, I don't know. I have right? to say, Baywatch probably did more for the lifeguard industry than than any kind of outreach that has happened. It's just so iconic. I, I, you said lifeguard, and I immediately think Baywatch, Pamela Anderson, and I only know Tom Pamela Sallet? Anderson. Tom Selleck was it? I yeah. do not know. Yeah. I only yeah. What can I say? But jo- um, job job ad for lifeguard: tall, blue eyes, blonde, her suits. 
Can swim, last. <laughs> can swim. Lifeguards aren't really... Um, Cosmetic surgeons earn less money than lifeguards in California. Can you imagine? I cannot. Yeah, I cannot. But it's... yeah. Maybe it's time to brush up those swimming skills, Chuang, and, you know, uh, you know, try out for a lifeguard position in LA. But there you go. Lifeguard shortage in Los Angeles. What other news has caught your eye? I'm looking over uh, in China where 1st of June today, Shanghai is lifting its lockdown. So what started out as a nine-day lockdown uh, evolved into, what, a couple months lockdown? And today is the first taste of freedom that many Shanghainese uh, will experience. Yeah, Reuters has written uh, in a report on Tuesday um, the government has started dismantling fences around housing compounds, ripping police tape off public squares and buildings. It's, um, it's an authoritarian state. Let's make no mistake about it. But that also is what makes them so efficient. They can mobilize the country of 1.4 billion people at the drop of a hat. I think even as they're lifting lockdowns in China, they're also uh, rolling out the, these mass testing centers. I think the idea is they are setting up testing booths on every street corner in Shanghai just to make sure that... Uh, Everybody, I think the goal is to have residents always just a 15-minute walk away from a place where they can get swabbed and tested. So even as they allow residents to go about, uh, they are still enforcing this really strict testing policy in line with zero COVID. I think it's also a sign that uh, they're not relenting from zero COVID. That's going to be the policy moving forward still. And that will have implications for China's economy, especially if it remains closed off to the broader world. Yeah, and back to the subject of beaches, bronzed bodies and lifeguards. Uh, did you guys watch uh, Top Gun? Um, because it opened last Friday, right? And it made me think about this story, which I read on, on some website, that Top Gun Maverick pulled in $156 million on opening day weekend. $156 million, uh, right? But the, most, more, the more interesting thing was that more than half of the ticket buyers were over the age of 35. Uh-huh. A lot of Gen Xs. A lot of, they're banking on the nostalgia. Ah, and a lot of throwback uh, scenes, you know, the bomber jacket, the aviator sunglasses, the Kawasaki Ninja, you know. Same bike, same bike, you know. And the fact that Tom Cruise in that movie hadn't been promoted beyond the, the rank of captain in the last 40 years. <laughs> Did you guys watch the movie? I have not seen I, it. Yeah. But what was your verdict, Chuang? Did you fantastic, enjoy it? Fantastic, fantastic. Yeah. yeah, the effects are, are off the scale. You go ahead and go ahead and watch it on the big screen. You cannot, you know, stream it at home and watch it. Well, if, say. if you've seen Top Gun Maverick, tell us what you think. Did it bring you back down the old days of yesteryear? Do you think that it can actually introduce um, Top Gun and Tom Cruise to a whole new a generation of moviegoers? Uh, tell us what you think. Zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. But uh, it's six forty five in the morning. We are going to take a quick break and we'll come back after that with a look at what's making headlines in our local newspapers and portals. Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. That was Stevie Nicks and Tom Petty. Stop dragging my heart. Uh, you're listening to The Morning Run. It's 6.49 in the morning. I'm Shazana Mokdar with Kusu Chuang. We are taking you through the headlines of this morning in our local newspapers and portals. Can I start with uh, this headline coming out of, I believe it's, uh, well, it's in Malaysia Kini, but it was reported by um, Nikkei, Asia Nikkei, because uh, the Prime Minister, Datuk Sri Ismail Sabri, um, did an interview with Asia Nikkei. And um, I think the headlines coming out of that discussion is he's downplaying calls for an early election, citing a rise in food prices and other living costs. So he has said that uh, now's not really the time to do an election because uh, everyone's grappling with cost of living, which is uh, true, but also also, it raises questions about um, 
about the timeline of GE15, I think we've all been talking about GE15, a lot of expectations it will take place this year. So it's still a will-it-won't-it guessing game. Yeah, I'm interested to, as to why Ismail Sabri decided to talk to Nikkei and not, I don't know, uh, Bloomberg or whatever, yeah, BFM or whatever, <laughs> right? Um, so the quote was, we will have to wait for the right time. We are now facing a period of increasing inflation with high prices. Do you think this is the right time? And of course, that made me think of the story in the star, um, quoting some suppliers. Some suppliers are actually selling chicken at 17 ringgit 90 cents per kg, which is double the seating price. So there are still some un- unethical um, food purveyors and food merchants around out there, which then also made me think about this could be the right time to, be made to maybe eat less meat and maybe have a more uh, fruitarian and vegetarian uh, diet. I feel like that is the headline of one of our newspapers today, isn't it? If I'm not mistaken, it's either the Straits Times or the Star. I, I believe it's the Straits Times, yes. The Straits Times has a huge picture of chicken, a chicken, two chickens on the front cover uh, with the big headline, Stop Eating Chicken. And I don't know if you're familiar with this um, with this brand, Chick-fil-A, Chuang. If you're, it's America, a, it's an American food chain, and they're... Uh, Commercials always involve cows painting signs that go eat more chicken so that, you know, it directs, diverts people away from beef, from beef to yeah. chicken meat. But <laughs> I suppose this time around, it's the other way. Uh, chickens are probably going eat more fish instead or, or something of the like. Yes. And uh, we're moving away from poultry to people. <laughs> okay. Page three of the Edge Brief. Um, has the Federation of Malaysian Manufacturers head honcho President Tan Sri So Tian Lai lamenting the fact that Malaysia's government has plans to export skilled Malaysians to Japan, uh, contending that the focus should be on efforts to shore up adequate local supply instead? And that kind of makes sense because if there was one country in the world with a lot of technology workers, it is Japan. And they, they maybe need more technology workers, like they need a hole in the head, an additional hole in the head. We need more technology workers here. Why, why do we need to send them away? I guess this is part of that broader conversation about our labor force, yeah, and whether we have the adequate talent pool to fill in the a vacuum of vacancies that we have, of skill shortages. Uh, I, I mean, I, without knowing the full details of what this plan to send our workers overseas is about, I'm all for technology transfer. I can see if we send workers overseas, they gain experience, they gain skills. If they come back, I can only see that enriching our local labor force. Um, but at the same time, whether what does that mean for those who do stay behind? Are they also receiving adequate skills and training? I feel it has to be looked at from a very broad perspective and we can't simply look at singular programs um, on that basis alone, yeah? And related to that, uh, there was another headline that I was interested in. Um, The Ministry of Health is considering employing trained nurses from abroad. And this is according to the Deputy Minister of Health. So the uh, Association of Private Hospitals has requested um, for the permission to, to, I I suppose, recruit foreign trained nurses because there is a shortage of uh, skilled, uh, trained, I suppose, high-skilled expertise nurses here. Um, And I was very interested in that, thinking, okay, what, what would attract uh, nurses to come here as opposed to many other countries where nurses can work? I feel that there are a lot of them who go to the U.S., who go to um, the Middle East. You know, I think that that has been like the route for nurses to travel abroad. 
what would attract them to come to Malaysia is the question I have. Yeah, intuitively, I guess working conditions and pay scales, right? Because a lot of nurses used to go to the Middle East because the money was amazing. But that also plays into another larger mega trend that is not just happening in Malaysia, but all over the world, which is the aging population. And I mean, Malaysia is suffering from a population which is aging very, very fast. And it's the same thing in China. And these nurses, they can be retrained or they can be, you know, parlayed into aged care. You know, we, a lot of old, older people, they don't want to go to old, uh, old, old age homes. They want to stay at home. So the demand for these nurses, for skilled nurses with the ability to look after old, older people and with the personalities to match, they are in great demand right now. And will the economy... Or A will, bit like California's uh, lifeguards. <laughs> <laughs> but will markets rise to the challenge and pay nurses and the ilk the, the right pay. You know, I feel like domestic care, uh, domestic work has always been looked down on. It's been underpaid in the economy, undervalued. Now that there's more need for them, will will the balance then, you know, rectify itself in order for more people to actually be channeled into this uh, sector? Yeah, which then goes on to the subject of whether the government should regulate it and, and have imposed price controls. A little bit like chicken prices. Like. I, I do feel I'm... that we're uh, uh, price controls as in uh, uh, maybe a, a, yeah. a floor rather than a ceiling, no? Yeah, yeah. And that, but that is the thing, right? Should, should governments be overbearing and regulate everything? Because markets can be very efficient. And if you have a demand for it, the prices will respond. Anyways, 6.55 in the morning. You know, we are wrapping up our headline coverage, but we'll continue conversations this morning after the 7 a.m. news bulletin. We'll check out how global markets closed overnight. Taking you to the news now is The Cure with a letter to Elise. Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.